I think there are a lot of reporters who are doing really good fact checks on the claims that are made by politicians, but they're doing those fact checks based on really careful reads of the evidence and of the medical findings and of the data. The coronavirus pandemic may be the biggest story of our lifetime. As such, many journalists must step up their game and master complex medical and health topics as part of their regular beat. Are they rising to the challenge or getting trapped under a mountain of data? I'm Michael O'Connell. This is It's All Journalism. Ivan Aransky is the board president of the Association of Healthcare Journalists and a distinguished writer in residence at the New York University's Arthur Carter Journalism Institute. He's also vice president of editorial at Medscape and co-founder of Retraction Watch, a site that reports on scientific integrity, fraud, and other issues. Welcome to the podcast, Ivan. Thanks, Michael. Good to be here. To start off with, tell me about the mission of the Association of Healthcare Journalists. So HCJ, and we celebrated our uh, 20th anniversary last year, so we're relatively new, but our mission has always been to help journalists, healthcare journalists, of course, do their jobs even better. I give them the tools, the resources, the training that they need so that they can always, you know, at least know a bit more than they would have if they weren't members, for example, and also to just improve health reporting in general. We know there are a lot of people who aren't members who might benefit from what we do, and we actually have a program for them at this point. But the idea is that if you can keep great training and think about ways to, you know, do training that your newsroom may not have the resources or the time or even or prioritize anymore, that's where we want to come in. Okay. And we're going to talk about that. I don't know if you know, there's this big healthcare story that's going on across the country and around most of the no, world. No, no, I know. I'm sure that you're in the industry. You probably know what I'm going to talk about, but we'll work our way up to it. But tell me, what type of training could a newsroom have to sort of improve its healthcare coverage? So there's informal training, of course, of, of the sort that mentors provide. And the fact that somebody may have been covering healthcare or science or medicine for 10 years, 20 years, and here's a new reporter. Well, unfortunately, Michael, as you well know, in many newsrooms around the country, that kind of longevity is no longer necessarily the rule, to put it mildly. And lots of people are asked to cover all sorts of beats all at the same time. So the education reporter may also be the healthcare reporter, may also be the, the cops reporter. I don't know. And, you know, what you want is for a newsroom like that to have access to tools and reporting tips and, frankly, experts on a Rolodex that can provide, even on the tight deadlines that we all know about, information and background and context, how to read a study, how to download, not how to download data so much, but how to analyze your hospital's data or health outcomes or what the local health agency is providing. All of that sort of stuff that, you know, you learn on the job and, you know, you hopefully are still learning, but might not have the opportunity to all those sorts of things are opportunities where we can hopefully, you know, bridge that gap. And sort of speaking to that, a lot of journalists, they spend their careers being generalist, and occasionally they get an opportunity to focus on something specific and, and sort of flesh something out. But, you know, as generalists, uh, occasionally we'll get a story that, you know, has a scientific bent, has a health or a medical bent, that we may not have the expertise that somebody who may be, you know, maybe on a, you know, maybe work for a, Oh, I don't know, an industry 
publication or a university or something, spending more time writing about it, they would not have that expertise in that storytelling. What would you tell a reporter sort of start out of the gate who's looking at a complex story like, oh, I don't know, the coronavirus? How should they approach that? Sure. I mean, I think, you know, at a very high level, the first thing I would encourage them to do is to think about that story with the same level of skepticism that they would a story about politics or a story about a company making an announcement. You know, the claims that people make when it comes to healthcare, we all get a little bit. And I look, I trained as a doctor. I and I, I come from a long line of doctors. So if anything, I I'd be somebody who, oh well, I should we should trust what other doctors say and whatever people in white coats say and whatever our government officials say. You should trust but verify the same way you would with anything that anyone else said. You should fact check them. And so thinking about any pronouncements, any claims with the same degree of skepticism, I think will actually go not all the way and maybe not even a far way, but it will start you on the path of being able to make use of, you know, resources that, you know, we might have available or that others in your newsroom might have available. ACG actually created something during this pandemic, which we actually hope would be useful to folks such as you described, who are maybe finding themselves on the coronavirus beat for the first time or finding themselves on the healthcare beat or the medicine beat, medical beat for the first time because of coronavirus. It's sort of everyone, you know, a lot of healthcare reporters, by the way, are in the same boat whenever it's political season, whenever it's primary or election season. I have colleagues in states with, you know, very active primaries or early primaries who are healthcare reporters who end up on the political beat. So it's not like it's a one-way street. It's actually a multi-way street, if you will. And so we've actually created a program where you can join ACJ just for six months because normally it's a year long, but maybe you'll only be on this beach for a little while or covering this for a little while. We, who knows how long this is going to last? Six months felt like a reasonable amount of time. And just understand our resources. We have, you know, for example, a, a listserv that is private. It's only available to our members, but it's there have been more than a thousand people on that email listserv. And if people need a source and they need help understanding a study, I actually moderate the listserv, uh, which I've been doing for a long time. And so something things come across like I, I need a source on X. Who's an expert on this? Who's who's good on TV? Who can talk about this? What does this stat mean? Or is anyone else seeing this sort of weird move by your hospitals to do this or that? And boom, right away, I'm getting a response that I, you know, obviously approve and post on the on the listserv where people who it's almost like you're you are having colleagues from around the country sitting next to you. But virtually, I mean, nowadays, you don't want anyone sitting next to you, of course. And so, you know, we've been set up for virtual helping one another for, for decades. I like that you said to, to be skeptical and, and use the same level of skepticism about medical sources as you would for, you know, a governmental source or a, an some other type of institution. Because I feel sometimes it would, it's so easy to, to get a report from, you know, some institute or whatever that you don't necessarily know all the ins and outs at. You may not understand that, you know, oh, they've got a particular political bent or they've got, you know, sort of a shoddy history in, in their research that you would just sort of give them the benefit of the doubt because they're institution. That's something that I think we always need to remind ourselves as journalists that, you know, always question, always verify and uh, something we need to, to constantly remind ourselves. So, you know, let's just go right in and talk about the coronavirus, the, the large thing in the room here. How do you think the, the coverage of the coronavirus has been so far? Well, I'll say by way of a 
sort of disclosure or, you know, my com- my own conflict of interest, you know, I'm running a team uh, in Medscape where we are post, I think we've posted something like 1,200 or 1,300 stories as we speak on coronavirus. Not all stories, actually, some reference material. We do all sorts of things at Medscape for doctors, other healthcare professionals. So I happen to think, of course, our coverage is absolutely stellar and, and it is actually stellar, but I <laughs> just say that by way of, you know, providing some, uh, you know, if you will, conflict of interest disclosure. I think that the coverage of coronavirus at some places has been terrific. Uh, sometimes even those places don't do all that do as well as maybe we hope they would. Some places hasn't been so good, but those also have sort of twinkling, shining lights. I think that, you know, I've been pretty impressed with the fact checking that has been happening again at, at many outlets, not all outlets that is Really, you know, this is not a story. This is this is not it's a new virus. Right. So this is not a story that has years of obvious clinical evidence or, you know, obvious policy moves that everyone should make. And yes, the entire country now is essentially uh, staying at home. Uh, There's you look at travel and you look at everything else and no one's going out and all of that as a response to the pandemic, but also as a response to new policies. There are people who are questioning whether those policies are evidence-based, and I, I think they're very well-intentioned. But at the end of the day, you do based on, you do what you think is best in the moment based on the evidence you have. Um, I think that some of the coverage, if you look at, again, pushing back on some of what officials are saying, uh, certainly certain officials are saying you, you're seeing a lot of really interesting reporting. I, I do think, though, that there is still the clamoring for every story and chasing every shiny object that's happening. Um, I know that we uh, at Medscape try really hard not to do that. And I know a lot of my colleagues at ACJ are always trying not to do that. But you can see where there's a tendency to do that about some new drug or some uh, new claim about uh, a new way to you know, treat patients or something like that. I see the appeal and I, and I see the very human nature sort of response to you know, there's a sort of way to think about the world that's, you know, don't just stand there, do something. Sometimes we have to don't just do something, stand there and actually, you know, try and understand something before we write about it. And again, I know people are on deadlines and there's scoops flying and I, you know, get the same alert from three different news outlets on my phone within three minutes. So I know that there's a lot of pressure and we feel that pressure too at Medscape. But I think that by and large, I've been pretty impressed, at least by a lot of the coverage I've been seeing. You know, I'm a community editor for Patch in the in the Washington D.C. area. I cover several local communities, and what's sort of amazing about this story is it is both a national story but also a very local story. The fact that everybody's at home and it, you can write tons of stories about you know people being stuck at home, the resources they need to get, you know, what is the local government doing, what is the state government doing, and we have over the last three weeks. And I feel like I've written more about this than almost anything I've ever written about in my life. But knowing, you know, you kind of get to a certain point with it that you realize, okay, this, you're building a wall almost. It's like today, this is today's brick I'm putting in here. This is going to be, this is a huge story. I can't cover every angle of it, but you know, today I'm going to sell something different, something that that's sort of impactful, that's something that means something. And certainly in the process of it, finding something that's truthful, uh, and factual that you that you can pass on, so that well, the next day you can sort of build on that coverage. Yeah, no, exactly. And, and and you know, as someone who really writes a lot about science as well as you know medical findings and and that sort of thing, I, I 
think that one of the, there's the old allegory, right, of uh, was the three blind wise men and the elephant, and each of them thinks that the elephant is something else when they touch part of it. And so that's actually what happens with science, so scientific research. Uh, each paper may tell you a little bit, but you don't get the whole picture. You know, another way to think about it is, are, are you looking at the entire canvas or are you looking at this tiny little square of the canvas where it looks like, you know, a lake, but actually when you pull back and see the entire painting, you're looking at, you know, a mountain with a little lake next to it or something like that. And so I think that's really challenging on the day to day. I mean, I used to run Reuters Health. You know, I was running a wire service and we were punching out 100 stories, more than 100 stories a week. And so I'm very, you know, comfortable with and, and understand the, the need for volume. But often what that means is you're, you're getting a very unsatisfying, if you will, look at what's really happening. And, you know, we've gotten to a point in the in coverage where I think at the beginning, any story from the front lines was really fascinating and important. And, and they still are really fascinating and important, but a lot of them sound the same. So how do you pull those all together and how do you sort of, you know, knit a sweater out of all those threads you've been pulling and, you know, see what the bigger picture is and see what the trends are. And, and some reporters are doing just terrific work in that area. If you look at someone like Sherry Fink, who, you know, Sherry's covered every disaster there is now in the past, what, 10, to 20 years, really. Um, and she's trained as a doctor and has all this access and just makes really good use of it. But her stories aren't just sort of, here's what happened today. They're you know, here's what happened today. And by the way, the reason why that, you know, unit was not well staffed or something like that is because of this policy that nobody thought much about when it was disbanded or when it was created. And that's the kind of stuff that I think a reporter who has been on the beat for a while is much more likely to bring to bear. Yeah. And, and I think that we're getting sort of and I guess the timeline is kind of shifting in different places of the country. And, you know, having covered this for two or three weeks pretty intensely, you know, maybe a month very intensely, beginning to see that, okay, now I can tell a little more analytical piece pieces. I can, I can look at sort of cause and effect, you know, why is this facility not being properly staffed or what's, what's keeping something from people getting the, the proper resources to deal with something. And then also the impact that you know, social distancing and and sort of um, being told to stay home is the impact that's having on uh, on the community and telling those different types of stories. So I think, you know, it's like there's the big story, the sort of the through line, but then there are all these other little things around it. I mean, there's lots of things to write about <laughs> the coronavirus, I guess is what I'm trying to say in a very roundabout way. You know, I, I'm thinking back way back when, when this this kind of all started, a lot of the initial sort of national coverage was covering this in a very political way. Did, did that kind of surprise you? Well, nothing ever surprises me anymore, Michael. <laughs> I mean, okay. I, I think God, any, you God know, I, I hear you. I hear you. Yeah, we've all been around long enough, and I, I'm, I'm making light of that. But I mean, to your point, in this environment, everything's political. I, I, I actually think, you know, everything is political. Every decision you make is political at some level. I guess that's maybe more philosophical than useful. But in this environment, everything is in a political, you know, is seen through a political lens. The Trump administration has, you know, sort of almost taken every news event and turned it into something, or the journal, or journalists have turned every Trump administration claim into something. That's all happening. 
And then remember, we're in the middle of primary season, which, by the way, we're still in the middle of. But I don't remember the last time I heard from our Democratic candidates, right, or potential nominees. So I don't think it's a mistake to cover politically. I think that it's a mistake to make it seem as though the politics are the only or, or, you know, only driving force in terms of decisions that are being made. I think that with this administration, you know, going back to something you had said earlier about, and I know you were talking about really not so much ease of getting a document or getting a report, but to play on that for a second, th- this administration has not been very good. Yeah, they have this daily press conference, which has turned into a bit of a, you know, just really a circus, but they have not been very good about, you know, actually providing the information. So everything's got to go through, you know, Mike Pence's office. Yes, Dr. Fauci is there every day, but the CDC has been sidelined. The CDC basically doesn't speak to the press. Um, and the CDC is the agency. And no disrespect to Dr. Fauci at all. I mean, NIAID is also should be in this category. But the CDC really is the agency that the U.S. should be looking to uh, in terms of expertise, in terms of policy, in terms of research. And again, not, to, not that we shouldn't question what they say either, but let's at least have them saying it. And then we can have the discussion about what they've said and the reaction and pushing back if need be. But this administration, you know, to say, I don't, I don't think it's a mistake to cover the politics of it because it, it's hard to get away from it. And the way that the, this administration has dealt with the pandemic or not dealt with the pandemic, depending on how you look at it, and the way that they've sidelined such important agencies and the choices they've made, I think you, you're forced to cover it as a political story. But that's not the only part of the political story. And for example, I think there are a lot of reporters who are doing really good fact checks on the, on the claims that are made by politicians, but they're doing those fact checks based on really uh, careful reads of the evidence and of the medical findings and of the data. Something you said there got me thinking about, you know, getting data from the government. I, you know, I know, for example, like at BuzzFeed, like Jason Leopold and his team are, um, have already said that they've, they put in FOIA information about a lot of the data that came out of the early part of this year that they're trying to get information about sort of the, the rollout of the disease, you know, information that's not easily available. You know, what has your been your experience in the last few years regarding like medical information or health information, getting that from the, the government is, has it gotten any better or is it still a matter of, you know, you have to FOIA, the, FOIA these things? Well, it's a complex story. And I think that it's certainly gotten worse in the past few years. We have a very active right to know committee, which really advocates for, you know, freedom of information and access to information. They're a very active committee and they have, you know, regular meetings and give feedback to federal agencies. You know, one of the issues that they're grappling with is, in fact, the release of information and what's, what's released, when it's released, how much of it is released. We've advocated for you know, better access to and the release of SNAP information on you know, food stamps and yeah. chains are, are actually benefiting from that and where it's being spent and what it's being spent on. We're not interested at all in individuals. That's not at all what we're about. We're interested in is this program benefiting certain certain corporate interests, for example, and is it being spent in a healthy way as well? So it's been really challenging. That did not start with the Trump administration. I want to be clear. But it has gotten much, much worse. And we now have, you know, in some, in some agencies, you know, a sort of almost daily battle with 
people who used to be spokespeople or used to actually communicate and, and they're just not anymore. That being said, there have been some very, you know, helpful agencies. And so it's been really challenging. And again, during this particular time in terms of coronavirus, you mentioned uh, BuzzFeed and, and others who are, you know, just suing. They're, they're kind of going right in with FOIA requests. I think, frankly, knowing that lawsuits are going to come shortly thereafter. But that's unfortunately the, the way that we get information now. And, and I think that sometimes people who are casual consumers or even regular consumers of news media don't really appreciate sometimes how difficult it is to obtain this information and obtain reliable information. That's a pretty big part of what we do. And if we can't do that, then it's probably not that surprising that our stories are not as complete as we would like them to be. Tell me about Retraction Watch. What is, what is its mission? Sure. So Adam, Marcus, and I co-founded Retraction Watch. It's not quite 10 years ago now. It'll be 10 years in August with a kind of a simple idea. Well, maybe two simple ideas. And Adam had broken a big, big story about a anesthesiology researcher, pain researcher, who ended up going to federal prison for charges related to scientific misconduct. And he was all over that story because he was the editor of Anesthesiology News, the magazine for people who put other people to sleep. I like to tell them <laughs> they use that, but they won't use that line. But Adam had broken that story. And I, you know, Adam and I knew each other. He and I are both longtime medical journalists. And we started trading some emails about retractions and talking about some of these things and misconduct. And we realized pretty quickly that these were stories hiding in plain sight. And you know, as any journalist knows, I mean, I get excited about filing FOIA requests as anybody else. I get excited about leaks and, and sort of uh, midnight or maybe now virtual midnight meetings in parking garages. But if I can find stories that are just that no one else has, but that they're, they're just sort of sitting there for me to find, I'm a really happy guy. And I also think that's really important work because a lot of these cases involve misconduct. So we created this blog. And the other thing we noticed was that the Retraction notices, which are from, you know, these august uh, peer reviewed journals often didn't tell you very much or they actually told you something that was wrong or, or incomplete or misleading. So we thought there was a transparency issue, too. Over the years, we also didn't know, it turns out, how many retractions there were. So over the years, we've now got a database of more than 21,000 retractions, more than any wow. place else that you'll find. But we report daily on, you know, a selection of them or usually one of them, a couple of them a day, depending on what the story is and also related issues. And then we're a nonprofit and I've had some very generous funding and, you know, continue our work with uh, one three quarters time uh, employee at this point. But what we have found is that it's a really rich vein, you know, to tap. Other journalists often pick up our stories and and run with them, which is great. We file FOIA requests ourselves, but the idea is to increase transparency and to make it pretty impossible for a researcher, because in many ways we're a trade journalism outlet, for a researcher to read or, or try and cite a retracted paper without at least knowing it was retracted. That's shockingly to us, and it's maybe not shocking anymore, but certainly still disheartening you know, retracted papers continue to get cited as if they hadn't get, been retracted. That that seems like a problem. It it wouldn't work in a legal setting. So why does it work in a scientific setting? So can you give me an example of, of something that's, uh, you know, a retraction that you guys have written about? Sure. So, well, we've got, I mean, there's some great stories like the guy, we actually have a leaderboard, you know, I don't know if I should admit this on a journalism podcast, but 
you know, isn't every uh, non-sports journalist a frustrated sports journalist, right? So we have a, a leaderboard on Retraction Watch, which is the people with the most retractions in the world. And the guy <laughs> with the most retractions actually has 181. He's an anesthesiologist. But then if you go down a few, you go a few uh, rungs down that ladder, the guy in fourth place is a guy named Diedrich Stoppel, who you may have heard of and, and your listeners may have heard of. Uh, this is a pretty celebrated story. He had all his retractions happen kind of in the early part of, of the last century, I guess, 2012, they started happening, give or take. And he was a psychologist and he would do studies about, you know, whether wearing red means you're angry or makes people angry and all this sort of pop culture kind of stuff that journalists, frankly, love. And it turns out he was making up all the data. He just made it all up. And he's had to retract 58 different papers. The case of Scott Rubin, I mentioned that Adam had broken, you know, a guy who was studying a drug called celecoxib, which has a black box warning on it. It was It's a painkiller that was supposed to be safer for your gut. It turned out to give people heart attacks, which just doesn't seem like a good thing for a drug to do. And so he was studying that and he also had made up all the data. You know, it's kind of a, this sort of, what's the term, villainy, um, you know, the sort of seamless underbelly that, that we're, we're tapping. And um, I have to say, it's still a lot of fun. So you, you wear a lot of hats. You seem to wear a lot of hats. If you saw my hairline, you'd see why, but yeah. yeah. Yes. So what drives you to do this, to write all the stuff, to sort of dig deeper on, on these types of stories, the, you know, looking at retractions, just the work that you're doing with AHCJ and with Traction Watch, what's driving you to do this? You know, it, it's always tempting, especially when you're a journalist looking for a narrative arc to sort of pin all the tails on a single donkey. But I have to say there is a thread here, at least the way I see it. You know, going back to when I was in my internship after medical school, I wrote a column for a medical trade publication published by the AMA, a monthly column about being an intern. And it was not very positive about being an intern. I mean, I, I saw the positives, but I wasn't getting any sleep. I was stressed out all the time. I really wasn't sure that I was treating patients as well as I could. I don't mean sort of emotionally and, and that, but just in terms of the medical treatment. And so I was honest about that. And uh, one of the Deans at the school actually wrote a letter to me and kind of everyone is back before CC, you know, email everything and said I was he was ashamed to learn that he was in my program. And I I realized, <laughs> wow, maybe that tells me something. And maybe it tells me that what I'm really interested in is, you know, figuring out what's really going on and and holding people accountable if I can and holding systems accountable. So I joined ACJ probably only a few years after it was founded. And one of the things that I learned very quickly was how to read medical studies. And you might say, and people do sometimes when I tell this story, say to me, well, didn't you learn how to read clinical trials and medical studies in residency or, or in uh, in medical school? Or even I used to work at JAMA when I was in medical school. I said, actually, yeah, sure, I did. But you know what? It's like advertising. You have to hear it like six times and you have to hear it in six different ways. And the way that I learned it from Gary Schwitzer, who was later my colleague on the board and who created Health News Review, a terrific site, and a, a sort of a whole vetting system, a whole, uh, not ranking system, but a, a sort of set of criteria for quality criteria for, for medical stories. Uh, that's where I really learned it. And eventually I ended up teaching that sort of panel, that course that we do at our annual conference. But throughout all of that is just, it's the skepticism to get back to what I was talking about you know, at the very beginning. It's this sort of skepticism and trying to hold 
people and institutions accountable. And I think that actually is the through line if, if I had to pick one. And it's true of my work at Medscape as well. Yes, we're a trade publication, but because we are have such trust with our readers and our members and our viewers, we're able to push stories and to ask them tough questions and because we they have such trust in us and such respect for us. So what wakes me up in the morning is knowing that the world could be, you know, a better place if people knew what was really going on and trying to actually elucidate some of that. You know, I succeed some days and some days I don't. But luckily there are lots of other people, whether they're HCJ members, whether they're at other news outlets, whether they're scientists and researchers themselves who are out there, they're some of them are doing great stuff that are shining light where maybe not everybody wants it shined. And that to me is what is so great about being a journalist. Yeah, and I agree with you 100%. I don't think there's anything else we can say to make the ending any better than that. Thank you for coming on the podcast, Ivan. My pleasure, Michael. Really, really happy to be here. You've been listening to It's All Journalism, a weekly podcast about the people who make the news. You can find out more about us and download past episodes at itsalljournalism.com. While you're visiting our website, why not sign up for the It's All Journalism newsletter? You'll get all the latest info about our podcast, including episode notes and news about live events and upcoming interviews. Go to itsalljournalism.com to subscribe. It takes a lot of people to create an episode of It's All Journalism. Nicole Grisco produced this episode. Amber Healy wrote our web content. Nick Dupre wrote our theme music. Emilio Brust helped with our booking. Nicholas Hunter provided a web assist. And I'm your host, Michael O'Connell. Thanks for listening.